Thank you for downloading this podcast and for indulging me. Again, this is an excuse for me to chat to playwrights and screenwriters that I like. Last week was Lucy Kirkwood. Next week is Michael Palin. This week, James Graham. The weird thing about being a writer is that in TV and film you get uh, nowhere near the amount of credit that you should get. And in theatre you probably get too much. James's big hit at the National was This House, a play about the Lib Lab Pact. And ever since he's been the sort of go-to political writer, he wrote The Vote for the Donmar Warehouse. He wrote the Channel 4 drama Coalition uh, about the coalition government. I had a chat with James at the back end of last year, so post-Brexit, pre-Trump. There's that saying that every writer is a frustrated actor, but I guess, um, and you did dabble in that at the beginning, but I wonder if in you there is a frustrated politician as well. Oh God, no. But I think eventually maybe um, as I enter my twilight years and in 20, 30 years time, I might, I might, uh, I I have like a a very old fashioned and romantic view about politics. And I think actually that I still believe in it as uh, some kind of civic duty that um, we should all probably have a go at in some capacity. So I imagine that maybe uh, in the decades to come, I wouldn't mind uh, having a go, but it's that way around rather than the yes. other way around. Well, there are people like Lord screenwriters, Lord Fellows, he's yeah. in the Lords, so there is... And, you know, there have been, uh, across the world, playwrights who become Prime Ministers in different countries, so it's not out of the question. I would hate to be Prime Minister, <laughs> I have to state that quite clearly now, yeah. but... Because that is something that you've been interested in from the very beginning, politics. Yeah, but I mean, the reason why this house felt like it was, an, uh, I suppose, something that interested me or a natural fit is it wasn't... Uh, actually that pompous. It wasn't about the ceremony. It wasn't about the grand ideas. It was about the, the human beings and the engine room. And the I don't know why, I, I, but I've always found the processes around systems really exciting and interesting, probably more than the big picture stuff. So when I started interviewing people for this house about like literally how do you pass legislation how does it walk from the commons to the lords what's the procedure when you're a new mp how many times you have to bow walk bow when you see the speaker's chair um some of it's ludicrous some of it makes sense um but it's that stuff it's the process stuff and then on a, on a human level the whips office in this house presented the opportunity to look at how you manage human beings and people through government so rather than how you manage economic policy it's how you manage a member of parliament who is going bankrupt or has a mental health problem or is having an affair and obviously I'm making it sound more serious than it when it came out it's more of a farce on stage but it, it's that stuff it's the human stuff that's always excited me but it did is it right in saying that it started personal for you growing up in Nottinghamshire seeing the um, people still talking about and debating in the streets yeah things like the miners strike yeah no definitely all that in fact the um it feels like people can sign that stuff to history, but actually the last person to be killed in my village because of the mining miner strike and those politics was uh, only 10 years ago. And so those antagonisms and those those anxieties and that um, confusion and, and crisis in all of us uh, still exist in, that, in my town. And it was never something that felt far away from me. It always felt very close. And with politics and with politicians, are you looking on them in a sort of David Attenborough-style <laughs> observation. I did a, um, a TV drama last year on Channel 4 called Coalition, which was about um, the five, six days of negotiations between Nick Clegg and David Cameron and those people about how you do this historic thing of getting two parties together to form a government. And again, it was about the slightly farcical elements of, of when it comes down to it. It's, it's who gets what office and who gets what title and that stuff, which I found very funny, even though the outcome was very serious. So I suppose maybe I am conscious of trying to do the reverse, I guess, of what other people do in terms of um, bringing them down or that iconoclastic satire where you, where you, where you 
uh, undermine them and, and, and pretty much say that everyone who wants to be in politics is power hungry or, or Machiavellian or crazy. I think something in some cases that's probably true, but I, I enjoy the idea of trying wherever possible to find the humanity in people. I'm sure it gets corrupted because I know that power corrupts, but I still have to believe as a playwright and a citizen of this country that most people still go into it for the best of reasons. And of course that can change. But I think, I, you know, and that's why the 70s were great because I, I had a whole raft of characters in an age which was pre the professionalization of politics. I think it's much harder to do that now because I think people enter politics at the age of 18, 19, 20 and see it as a career choice. Prior to that, it used to be something we did, as I say, possibly too romantically as, as a civic responsibility. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in politics you do have, I think it's Aaron Sorkin who says that uh, what he sort of looks for in characters always is motivation and what's right. stopping them. And I guess with politics you do have policies, you have a motivation and yeah. you literally do have an opposition to what you're doing. That The sort of, the drama is already there for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. It's all there. But the joy of it then is it's, it's these personal problems, but then set against um, the backdrop of national crises. Um, that's why the coalition drama I did was so exciting because you had, to me, what is essentially a Shakespearean character in the form of, surprisingly, Nick Clegg, um, against the backdrop of, of, a, of a country which hadn't been able to make a choice about what it wanted its direction to be. So that just is you know, Shakespearean in that sense, um, which is a gift to any playwright. And for that, for Coalition, you didn't speak to Nick Clegg, did you? But you spoke to people, uh, Danny Alexander, was it? I spoke to, yeah, a few. And actually, since that, I've spoken to Nick Clegg. Um, uh, but what no, did he I say? Didn't. He, I don't think he's watched it. <laughs> and I, I would completely understand why you wouldn't. Um, but he was very helpful and uh, cooperative. But no, in the re research for that, I managed to speak to Peter Mandelson, um, uh, Paddy Ashdown, Danny Alexander, uh, a lot of Gordon Brown's people. Um, actually, the most impressive person to speak to and the person who sort of curated and orchestrated the whole thing was uh, Gus O'Donnell, who was the um, cabinet secretary at the time. And he wrote the manuals about how to facilitate uh, these uh, negotiations. So again, in a, in a massive geek out, I was just thrilled to meet the person who wrote the book on that and how the, our system is not designed to create hung parliament. So when it happens, you need, we, we need, you need a manual and he wrote it. And do you worry, because you come at it already really interested, as you say, in the sort of nitty gritty and the procedures and all of that kind of thing. Do you sometimes in the course of a draft, like with this house or with coalition go we're getting a bit nerdy here do i need to pull back uh i hope not i mean i have i trust other people to tell me if what i'm if writing about you know the, the detail of, of monetarist policy in the conservative party in in the 1976 party conference if that's too geeky then they'll tell me but to be honest i i consider myself and i'm i, I never make any bones about this i consider myself a populist when it comes to theater i do really want to reach a mainstream audience I, I get excited by experimental work. I love going to watch it. I like pushing myself in terms of um, form and style. But ultimately, I, I, I don't think enough people get access to the theatre. And I think if we get them in there, we have a responsibility to not do work in spite of them, but to try and invite them in in any way possible. And that's classic stuff. It's about a good story and, and accessible characters and, and emotions and crises that we can all relate to. So it's not, it's not um, you know, Vickers' trousers falling down and, and pies in the face, but it's, it's classic stuff. And there are sort of two spectrums, I think, with political drama. There's, first of all, there's a spectrum where at the one end of it, you have the thick of it, and at the other yeah. end, you have uh, the West Wing in terms of how you approach politics. And then, of course, you have the political spectrum of left wing, right wing. Mm. Where do you lie on, or try to lie on both of those? All human beings are basically rubbish. I associate with that very much, whether it's in politics or a hospital or a, or a 
the school, we're all basically rubbish and we're all bluffing it. And I think that's what the theatre uh, thick of it does so well. And then on the other hand, I guess, yeah, you've got the West Wing, which is um, aspirational and and does the very un-British thing, I guess, of, of putting some of these people on a pedestal and, yeah. and, and even hoping that they might be able to save us or that they're the best versions of ourselves. Um, so you, where do I stand? I guess it depends on the project. I did a... Um, but things like coalition, so yeah. real people... I guess it's a middle ground. I mean, ultimately, I think it probably did offer the idea that that people are basically a bit crap and rubbish and need to bluff their way through and negotiate their way through their own their own their own flaws of the system and their own their own flaws. But that it it it, it suggested, I suppose, what would you do? Like, if you were put in that position, you're human. You have um, weaknesses and you have desires and. Um, if you had to compromise your some of your principles for the pragmatism of getting into power, would you do it? And you probably would. And how far would you go? And I think it asked that question. Then again, I did, I did a show at the Dunmore called The Vote, which was a, a live, kind of a live TV teleplay um, with people like Mark Gatiss and Judy Dench in it, and it went out live on election night. Clang. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it was. We were very lucky with people. I mean, that again, that was about um, normal people succumbing to the flaws of the system or the ludicrousness of the system. Um, it, was, it was a story where um, some innocent poll clerks tried, made an accidental mistake and then tried to remedy it through uh, incorrect means, but for the best of intentions, and it, get, and it escalated into ultimately becoming voter fraud. Um, so I guess it showed up the, the weaknesses of the, of the system and how vulnerable it is, but also the weaknesses of, of the people that run that system and us, the electorate as well. So I guess that one sits somewhere in, in between as well. And politically... Oh my god! Um, I've managed to avoid ever sort of saying that to anybody. You know, it's. Uh... But you do. You're not one of those people who naturally is a centrist or just very even-handed. Or are, are you thinking? Actually, I think this, but for the purpose of this play, I need to sort of toe a more even-handed line. I would always say that. I would always want to be fair, um, even if I disagree. I. It was very important to me when we were doing this house that the conservative whips. Um, in opposition to slightly more colourful, exciting, funny characters on the Labour side, um, that the Conservatives, which had a decency and a, and, a, and a moral code, you might agree with it or disagree with it, but they had a code. And actually the kindest, most decent thing that happens in the entire play in a very murky world of political underhand dealings is 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 committed by um, the Conservative Deputy Whip, Jack Weatherall, who's a huge establishment character. He goes on to become the Speaker of the House. Um, he did this, and it's a true story, he did this incredibly decent thing and made an offer um, during the vote of no confidence in 1979, which saw Margaret Thatcher come to power. It was an unknown story at the time, but he, he made an offer to a Labour whip that would have reversed the outcome and Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have got into power in the same way that she did. Um, and uh, it was a very decent, noble thing. And I, I, I just, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too easy, but I get seduced by that kind of nobility and that sense of decency in politics. I'm not saying it's across the board or even happens very much today, but I, I think examples like that, I suppose it's to me, it's detrimental to our democracy to constantly, constantly say that the system is beyond saving and that the people in it um, are, are irredeemable because I just don't believe that's true. And actually, I think that excuses people to go into that kind of political rhetoric in the pub where you say, oh, they're all the same, there's no point, I'm not voting. I think that legitimises that point of view and that does no one any favours. And going back to, as you sort of demonstrated there, quite research-heavy plays, how does that work 
in the process of writing the play? Do you sift through all of the material and then at the very end, or are you sort of researching as you go along? More as I go along. It normally starts off with the um, the basic premise and then I will I will work out what interests me about that story. Uh, and then there'll be an intense couple of weeks or maybe even longer of research. Um, and for this house... It was about a month, I think, of initial research. And it took a long time because the whips whips don't talk. Uh, they don't publish memoirs. They don't write books. They don't do interviews. And they certainly don't speak to uh, to playwrights. Giles Brandreth aside. Giles Brandreth aside. And actually, Giles Brandreth uh, received a black spot in the post after he published his book to indicate that he was out of the club because he betrayed that code. And it, they take it very seriously. So it was a mountain to climb to get people to talk to me. But there are things you can start with. So I would spend times... Um, buried in university library basements, going through archives, people's papers, discovered one great story um, in the basement of, I think it was Canterbury University, which set off a certain um, tact. But then I would start writing quite soon, actually, because I think I I know I have to protect myself against my geekery and I have to protect the audience against that as well. So if I researched a play for a year and just did that, by the time I started writing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd have lost sense of the story. And I'd wanna, I'd, I would find everything too interesting. So I begin writing as I'm researching, and then the research process gets focused and narrowed down onto what I need to find out to tell that story. So uh, very quickly. So for example, this house. Um, for a time, I was obsessed and amazed by the Jeremy Thorpe story, which happens during the period of the play, seventy-four to seventy-nine. He was accused of murder. He was he had to resign as, as leader of the Liberal Party. He was put on trial for attempted murder. That's like an insanely amazing story for, for, for political drama. I had to just jettison and abandon all of it because I realised very quickly, as interesting and as amazing as it was, it wasn't the story that I was telling. So in that way, beginning writing as you're researching, I think, helps the process. And I guess it doesn't work with something where it is based on um, real events like this house, but for other plays where they are entirely fictional, are you a person who plots out sort of an entire three acts and then starts writing the dialogue, yeah, sort of catching up yeah. with it? I, um, I've learned different things. There's no right or wrong way to do it. I remember when I was at the um, Royal Court Young Writers Programme and Simon Stevens, who a lot of uh, playwrights of my generation was, was sort of uh, uh, inspired by and taught by. He would he would be an advocate of the of the planning model. Then there's other people who say you just got to start start with an image, start with an idea, start with a character, start with a phrase, and just you know explore that. I'm a big believer in um, in a roadmap, but I, I allow myself the the right to deviate off the map if uh, and, and go off wandering around the hills or something. Um, if something more exciting uh, appears on the journey, but I, the only way I can I'm a big believer in craft and I'm a big believer that the best. The best way to um, to explore politics and ideas is through stories, through cause and effect and consequences and human action. And I think you can only achieve that level that, you know, Arthur Miller did or anyone else did is if you have a satisfying story that 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 through the deeds of human beings reveals the ideas of the politics. You mentioned there that the you know starting with an image or an idea or something like that is that the case? I'd never heard of and then went back and read your play, um, The History of Falling Things, right. which if you sort of need to sort of explain what it is, and that because that is sort of an, an idea that yeah. you then sort of, if you know, did a play uh, yeah, History of Fallen Things was, God, that's a while ago, that is a, well, I was about to say it's completely not political, but everything is political. That is a story about a phobia I found. Um, God, what's it called? Coronathnetophobia? I can't remember. Long word. 
very long word with not enough vowels. And uh, it is the fear, specific fear of falling satellites. No idea where that came from. I think I read it in one of those weird almanacs you get when people don't know what to buy you for Christmas. And I remember seeing it going, my God, that's amazing. And I immediately conceived of a... um, almost like a romantic comedy, I suppose, of two people in the same town with the same phobia going on an adventure to try and meet each other, but really struggling to be outside, so having to find clever ways to reach each other in the middle. And actually, the image, I guess, of two people en- engaging in a relationship, this was, I guess, before the uh, dating online and apps and software and remote relationships was a thing. I had the image of two people building a relationship um, whilst never being in the same space, but I could see that physically on stage, yeah. And without sounding sort of all A-level English, you like shaking up the form, I as you like mentioned. a bit of form. <laughs> a bit of form play. um, playing. Yeah. Your play, which I've completely forgotten the name of, which is the one where people have receipts, tax oh, inspector. Oh, uh, The Man, yeah. Which was, what was that? The audience members would be given a receipt and yeah, then... that was kind of fun. I did that one, to go back to your aspiring actor, frustrated actor point. I did that um, with some other amazing actors like Sam Barnett and... Uh, and Leander Dini. The basic concept, and this came purely out of the frustration of my own tax return, but that all self-employed people will associate with this. It was the idea that um, I'm rubbish at finishing at filling out my tax return in an efficient way because I empty my box of receipts and instead of just going, okay, that's an expense, that's not an expense, I will look at the cinema stub or the uh, the bar receipt and go, oh yeah, that's when I met, that's when I met Luke for that thing, and we had that thing. Oh, and then where's the photo for that? And then I look up the photo, and then I would Facebook message five hours and go, later. Now I've done one receipt. So it was the idea, I guess, of exploring a character's uh, year, a year in that person's life, through the receipts. But what what excited me as a form was that the audience would uh, be given a different receipt when they came in and then the actor playing them and we would rotate the actor every night. So every single time you came and saw the show, it would be completely different. Um, the actor would take a random receipt, so it might be a train ticket to a wedding or a funeral of someone you've not even met yet, and they would tell that story and there would be 50 stories. And every, so every night that year would evolve uh differently in a different order what was amazing actually we did it at the Finborough and then I took it on tour around the UK doing it myself which was I recommend to any aspiring writer because there's nothing like looking at people in the eyes as you deliver your work and learning what works and what doesn't what was amazing is that every single night people would come up to me afterwards and say how did you cheat how did you make that work um, because they were convinced, they believed that their, the order of their narrative was the right order because it made total sense to them. And I, it, it took a long time to, to convince them that, no, that version was... And actually, sometimes I would come out frustrated that that iTunes song had played before that date or whatever. Um, but to them, it was perfect. Because that's the point. Because if you're a writer, surely you have to be a bit of a control freak. And I know in the in the past you've said that you liked the idea of locking 200 people in a room and then you're going to tell them this in this order in this way for two hours or what have you yeah there you haven't got any control you don't know how it's go. how is that satisfying it's, it's satisfying because it revealed to me the just that human impulse and that desire to make sense of and not something that make, makes no sense uh, through story. So we we search for narrative and we we search for meaning in random events. We do that in our everyday life, and I think that's why we go to the theatre or why we watch a film because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it makes random events, it makes tragedy, it makes losing someone or the end of a relationship or death. It gives it some kind of meaning because you frame it within a context. And 
what revealed to me about the audience's response to the man, the, the receipt show, was that they, they, they made sense out of something which I knew made no sense because it was just <laughs> completely random. But we, we have to make sense of it. Um, oh, so but yes, that, must yeah, be, that must be disheartening, though, if there are people there nodding very sagely, thinking, oh, very clever, and you're thinking, it <laughs> no, is nonsense. No, <laughs> yeah, they think, you think it's a magic trick, but actually it was very, uh, it was very honest. And, uh, but, uh, so that was really fun. But uh, I don't know whether it's about control, but what I, what I have observed about my own stuff recently is that I am a, I am really uh, uh, attracted by the idea of playing with time or that at least time and the passage of time is a thing because theatre is live it's our last live medium really uh, where you put everyone together in a physical space so whether it was the vote which had to happen um, in the exact 90 minutes of the voting during the general election so we had a play that was set in the last 90 minutes of voting that was set that was produced and broadcast live during those last 90 minutes. And even more um, strictly because you'll have had to hit ad breaks. We had to hit and ad breaks and, and the audience knew that we had to come down at exactly 10 o'clock because that's when the exit poll was coming out and the TV station would just stop looking at us and they would go to Jeremy Paxman on Channel 4. And even that sense, that sense that everyone walked into the theatre knowing that at the end of the play we would have a different government. We wouldn't necessarily know who it was, but it was locked in. And the exit poll, which turned out to be very accurate, would be coming in at 10 o'clock. So there's something about that, which theatre is uniquely placed to experiment with, the idea of a passage of time. And I guess with uh, privacy, we mm. did that in New York uh, over the summer with Daniel Radcliffe. And we did that here two years ago uh, with Josh McGuire and a great cast of people. That required the audience to come in um, with their mobile phones and the part of the show was stripping the data of the audience and that affected the, the more so actually in the New York version that affected the show every single night. Um, so the, the the mere data that comes into the room affects the show and you need people there in that space live reacting to it for that to, for the show to work. And I don't know, I'm nervous that people would think all that stuff, the receipt show, the data show, that it's a gimmick, that it's a trick, that it's an illusion. But actually I just feel like though that when I play with form, it's about finding the right form to explore that theme or that the political issue that I'm interested in. So with privacy, it was about how much data we're giving away that we don't realise we're giving away. And you need, therefore, a, a, a form whereby the audience gives up a bit of their privacy. The show gives up a bit of its privacy, uh, the character in it was me. And that's the best way to explore our boundaries and, and likewise with the vote. But also you have to put trust in you do the collaborators that you're doing that with completely yeah, yeah. so Josie Walk directing and all the cast and everyone else it's not just a play by James Graham yeah no the, the, the weird thing about uh, the weird thing about being a writer is that in TV and film you get uh, nowhere near the amount of credit that you should get and in theatre you probably get too much so in every single play that you do you have to hand it over to the acting company at some point normally about week two week three of rehearsal so they can murder it so they can screw it right up um uh, of course not so they can make it more than the sum of its parts is the political answer yeah. but that um but never more so actually in the vote and i was amazed to watch this on, on election night so we did two weeks of previews and the first couple of shows we were like wildly off we were five minutes over six minutes over and we were thinking oh christ okay so do, do we cut do we change and it was a bit of a weird game i guess that's why my obsession with time was uniquely realized in that moment because for a week we played this it was like a game where we'd, we'd be 30 seconds under two minutes over um and the at one point the acting company sort of got it wasn't a rebellion but there's 50 of them and and obviously it's completely alien to them to be so obsessed by time. They just want to hit the marks, play for truth. 
uh, explore their character. And if the audience is, is, you know, responding and laughing, they don't want to cut that off. So the, this obsession, our obsession with time was new to them, but they, they're realists and they understood if they go over 10 o'clock, we're just going to have to cut and no one will see what see the ending. Um, so despite that, it, I was, this emo, most amazing thing happened on election night in that by about the third ad break, we were at least three and a half minutes over. And obviously me and Josie watching it on television outside, we had no control of this, but and we can't talk to them, we can't tell them. But what they had, they knew that they were over the acting company because um, every t- every entrance, this is the optimum time to walk in. So, for example, uh, Bill Patterson knows that he's meant to walk in at uh, 76 minutes and 12 seconds. And if he's over, he knows he's over. If he's under, he knows he's under. And this amazing, almost socialist thing happened where the acting company realised they were three minutes over and together, without even talking to one another, on stage in the final five minutes, they clawed back the time. And it was amazing watching Mark Gatiss, particularly because he he had the main uh, dialogue in that moment, almost lead it like a band leader and silently just through nods and winks and hand movements they all collectively brought it in so that it hit exactly 10 o'clock it was kind of amazing and it was nothing to do with me or anyone else the stage management team it was just the actors in that space deciding they were going to hit 10 o'clock and it was kind of amazing but frustrating that little to do with you. Oh, yeah. I just had to let it go. And actually, I just assumed it wasn't going to happen. I'd already emotionally let go to the last two minutes of my play because I was convinced that no one on Channel 4 would see it. But they did. So thanks to Mark Gatiss and those guys. Does any of that detract from putting more of you into the play, making things a more kind of personal explorations? You seem more keen on... You know, finding an interesting thing that happened in the 70s and just <laughs> reading about that. Sure, I'm sure a therapist would uh, have a theory about why I tell all my stories through the 1970s. Um, <laughs> no idea, I, I, but I, I'm convinced, well, two things, I think. I'm convinced that even if I'm writing a play about Anthony Eden and Anthony Eden's um, obsessive pers- pursuit of power and then his his the narcissism and the the human frailties that meant that he lost it very quickly and made bad decisions... I'm sure there's a part of me in that somewhere. I'm convinced I could name list characters in this house, which I recognise as being my anxieties or my obsessions or weaknesses or even strengths, if there are any. Um, so I'm always there. But no, you're right. It's a very safe space to explore my personal issues and even my politics because it's uh, they don't often in those types of shows have to come to the surface very much. They're not um, They're not agenda plays. So I get to stay quite hidden. Um, but in that if you, for whatever reason, thought that you were a narcissist, to use an example that you used there of one of the characters... Not necessarily, it's, necessarily saying that. No, 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 no. But, but it's one thing to write a, a story and there happen then to be narcissists in them mm. and obviously a bit of you goes into that. Another playwright in a different room, then make it their yeah. own life. Um, which has Which has massive validity, I think. I I guess the man is the closest I've come to doing that. But then there's a good, there's, I've did a play at the Bush called The Whiskey Taster, which was about a guy about my age from Mansfield, which is where I'm from, suffering issues about identity, uh, who he loved, uh, his, his moving to London, the big city, not knowing uh, what he wanted, who he was. And actually the character trait I um, applied to that character was that he had synesthesia and the world was too... His senses were all screwed up and the world was too colourful and too bright and too loud. And um, so I guess in those plays, I would recognise more explicitly myself. 
but I, I neither feel it's something I, I pursue or hide from. It's just when it comes, it comes, and when it doesn't, it but doesn't. You'd never be tempted. And before we started recording, we mentioned um, both like in the TV show Fleabag, the yeah. Bridge thing. Also, there are you know shows like Lena Dunham's Girls, where yeah. it is person basically puts life on screen. You'd yeah, never yeah. be tempted by that. Oh, I would. I don't have no idea. Maybe one day. Yeah, I, I wouldn't rule it out. And actually, for me, if I'm going to spe- devote time to writing something and ask an audience to spend time watching it, it will always have to have some kind of political, social drive. I don't think that will ever change. But Maybe when you enter the House of Lords. Maybe when I do that, yeah. And I retire. But actually, I would say that Fleabag, Phoebe's um, drama, that is a, that's a huge social political commentary on gender and on, on, uh, on age and on multi, you know, multiculturalism and uh, uh, the economy and, and love and uh, sexual politics. So it's, you know, I, I think everything, I, 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 I wish I could have written Fleabag. I wish I could have, I'm a big fan. How much has your work changed with becoming more successful? I don't think it's changed at all, actually. I feel like I'm in a really lucky position that I was always, I, I, through the Finborough Theatre, I was surprised to find the artistic director, Neil McPherson, was very happy to programme plays by Albert Einstein and Margaret Thatcher by a 20, 21-year-old kid. Um, do plays that were far too big to put in that space and then consequently, bizarrely to me, and I feel very grateful being given this trust by people like the Bush Theatre and the National Theatre to, to continue that work and put it on bigger stages for bigger audiences. So I don't, I, I don't think that my process is any different whether I was writing a play in my spare time for free during the Finborough Theatre years whilst working in call centres or on bars or in supermarkets. It's really the same process happens. You get given a commission by Nick Heitner in this case or Harvey Weinstein or Scott Rudin. The process is the same. They tell you to come back with a, a script that they want to produce and you go away and you have to do it. And what about as well mixing in different forms? Obviously, you started, as you say, writing plays for the, for the Fimbra. Now, writing films, writing um, the books to musicals. Yes. Yeah, writing, writing the book to a Gary Barlow musical was a very different... Actually, that is a very different process. And mainly because it's the um, it's a commercial... It was a Broadway show, so that that whole world completely alien to me. That's Finding was. Neverland. Finding right? Neverland, yeah, which uh, ran, I think, for about 18 months on Broadway. It's just gone on a national tour and it's going to come to London hopefully next year. That was completely different. That was working in a, in a system that it was an $18 million musical, and the people that you meet as a result of that is a very different process to the Fimbra Theatre or the Bush Theatre. Uh, not better or worse, uh, not more productive or less, but it's different, and you do find yourself having to work in a group more than you do in isolation. Also, it's a musical, so you have to work with lyricist composers and amazing people I didn't even know existed, uh, vocal arrangers, orchestrators, people who who work with you to work out how to tell uh, the non-verbal aspects of this story through, through sound or music or choreography or dance or movement, and that was thrilling to me. And I, 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 re- I, I that it's a completely different muscle, but I, I relished... It was very hard, I'm not going to lie, it was completely hard, and almost a black hole of time as well it was years that we spent working on that that meant you couldn't work on anything else because you have to be physically present in america in a room with those people all that time with the orchestrators with the orchestrators so you can't um just go off and say i'm going to nip out to do my novel but uh i i wouldn't i wouldn't have changed it for anything it was brilliant and and was that again i don't know i'm trying to find frustrations which maybe tells more about um me than, than you but was it frustrating at all in a musical, for example, the big emotional punches are meant to be the songs. Yeah. And the book leads you up to that. Yeah. Was you, that annoying? That's not annoying. It's just a diff... You have to... Uh, 
it's like a relay team. You just don't, you know, that someone's going to pass it on to you and you've got to pass it on to someone else. I mean, I guess also that I, even though I've said that actually in the past, that being a book writer of a musical is just uh, it's doing all the hard work to set up to the fun stuff that everyone else does. But actually, it, the the stuff that I really enjoyed was the structuring of the story. And, um, you know, it was my first time doing it. And Gary Barlow and Elliot Kennedy won't mind me saying it was their first time. And actually, they didn't know what they were doing any more than I did. So the work started with me and I had to structure a, a show in the way I would any other show. And I had to create a story structure that provided moments where that they could slot into to to do their work and to sing to create and, and write their music so I felt like I had a huge control actually in terms of working out where the song should be what they should be about um and then working a lot with with Elliot and Gary to to work out what the lyrics are they're pop songwriters so they initially like me hadn't done it before and we all had to learn that in those songs things have to change so you can't just sing the same verse and chorus three times they ha- there has to be revelation in that and you're part of that process as the writer you're part of that process about going who's singing why are they singing what do they learn and where do they go after that song and you said that was a year oh my god more than that i would say uh well the first workshop i did of that musical which was a huge learning curve was 2013 and what are we now, 2016? And I'm yeah. still writing it. I was in Buffalo three weeks ago um, opening the tour and we I rewrote the first 20 minutes uh, just because I thought, why not? Why not? Let's see if it works. I'm God, torn I, in a different way. So I was just thinking, just go away. Just, just leave me alone. Just buy the merchandise and go. Yeah. No, no, I just can't let it go. And I, I, I feel like if you're not going to learn what works and doesn't even two years after you've opened, then, then why bother? But you're quite a, a quick worker, that year and a bit aside. It seems like, you know, in the amount of time that you've written however many plays, there are some people that would have been pleased to have squeezed out a play in five years. Sure. Do you recognise that you are a, a quick worker? Uh, yes, but that, that's, I, don't, I guess that's neither positive or negative. I, I recognise that I don't, I don't feel like that anxious writer that, that struggles and pulls their hair out and has to go for walks or go away and take a couple of years to work out who they are I, I can I do know what I want my place to be about and I can whip out a draft sometimes in a couple of days but and that's not the draft that you will see or the audience will see there's then the months and possibly years that come after that where you're refining and honing and that's the, actually the more rewarding bit that's the more fun bit when you get a director on board and you can start really uh, testing and interrogating the script but I Yes, there there are plays that sometimes it, there, there's been a, a week of work and that's the first draft. But is there a big pile of things that never were finished? Not really. No, there's a, there's a few ideas that aren't written down in, that are in my head, which I haven't got to yet, which I always thought would be my earlier plays and then maybe I got distracted. But no, I don't really have that electronic or physical jaw with unproduced plays. And I normally, if it's an idea I think is worth pursuing, I will normally pursue it, even if it takes years to convince anyone else they're worth producing. And you've talked in the past about being a, a terrible workaholic and sort yeah. of just like powering through. Is that still bad? Um, it's it's not as bad as it was. There was a time when it was bad and it, it was detrimental to my happiness and my health. I oh, well, what was happening? Just, I, I suppose, uh, how long ago are we talking? Um, I guess like three or four years ago, it like took people I was like living with, my my housemates, to point out I probably was a bit too thin and looked a bit too tired all the time um, and why wasn't I talking and why wasn't I going out 
and I recognized it, but I didn't recognize it as being a problem. I, I guess I always thought I came from a very hardworking, working class background, families who, who did more than one job. I guess ultimately somewhere there is still a guilt, which I know I still have about being a playwright, being a writer, being in London, having people produce my plays, feeling like any time not spent earning that is is either a waste of time or ungrateful. And I guess there's, yeah, there's of course a part of me which I'm trying to, um, which I think has got better, whereby the validation you get, which is validation I probably didn't get when I was younger, when I was at school, in the same way that we all sort of feel a bit shit when we're at school, I guess the, the validation you get when people like your work or want to come and see your shows is kind of intoxicating. It can be a bit of a drug. And if you have all these ideas, if you want to talk about all these different things that are happening and people are saying, well, fine, we'll give you a commission, then you have to kind of protect yourself um, to not just say yes to everything. God, now we really are on the therapist couch. We are, aren't we? Thank you. What do I owe you? <laughs> and just finally, lots of projects coming up. If you sort of do a, a cursory Google of you, it comes up saying things like adaptation of 1984, a West Wing-style number 10 drama for Sky, um, a, a film about the Queen for Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Are these all things that are either on the back burner or are being cooked up at the moment? No, they're all real. And you... In a way, most of those, because they're all TV and film products, in a way you can't control when they happen or how they happen. So my the next movie I have going in... Sorry, film. Ugh, the next film I have going into production, been in America too long, is actually something I started about five years ago. And there have been things that I started a year ago that have already happened, but this is a script that I started five years ago that just through politics or logistics uh, is only now getting produced so this is a book adaptation called gypsy boy which is a a gorgeous book um it's a memoir about a kid uh who grew up as a gypsy in the the 80s um uh in the in uh, england and he came from this big fighting family um and it was very clear early on that he wasn't going to be a natural fighter and actually as he grew older it probably became quite clear to the people around him that he was gay and he um, he tried very hard through his teenage years to be to fit in. And actually, the book itself is a very you know in terms of a, a childhood, it's actually quite exciting. It's like an eighties Stand by Me Spielberg film. They go on adventures, and his imagination is incredible. But he is um, physically and emotionally um, abused by some of the people in that community. And in the end, he has a choice to either stay and probably be destroyed, or to leave. And he leaves and has to work out how to live in our world in in our society and eventually he managed to learn how to write and he wrote his story down and so we're making that into a film which goes into production next year for the bbc west wing style drama that is still in development there is a script but it's um honestly events overtook it and i can can imagine uh, brexit happened and everything else happened and actually i realized what i was writing was nowhere near radical enough so i'm a bit back to the drawing board on that in terms of storylining and would you say, looking back on your career, that you're you're satisfied? Things have gone well. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. As I say, I feel very lucky, and I feel I feel thrilled that I've been able to go and do a play at the National, and I got to take my family, and my mates, to see a, a film at the cinema that I did, and those basic things that you want to tick off. And I feel very lucky to to, to when um, big, crazy political events happen, whether it's an election or a referendum, that people at the moment still call me and say, do you want to use this as a, as a way to explore this? That feels very lucky. So I'm grateful for that. I wish I probably should have done less, a bit less, just so that I could have enjoyed it more and that the, maybe that the, the work itself was more focused. I'm sure that I can think of a few things I did 
which I think would have benefited from more time and more space. But that's small. And actually, yeah, I probably wouldn't. Um, I don't really regret anything so far. James Graham. So you don't miss next week's episode with Michael Palin. Uh, why not subscribe? It's free and it will bring you good luck. <laughs>